But we do have the ability to change the world. In my world, I've never anticipated We're anything. also trying to change paradigm. We're more than just a, a collection of uh, hammers and swords. It is such an exciting opportunity to really change brains. We always lose touch with common things that everyone uses and where they come from. Welcome to Drexel's 10,000 Hours podcast. Our goal is to mine the stories behind our region's innovators, inventors, and thought creators. We'll be talking to experts in subjects from fashion to neuroscience to find out where their passion for work and inspiration for ideas comes from. I'm your host, Maurice Baynard. Not that I think that we're pinky and the brain, but we do have the ability to change the world. If anyone can change the world, it's Veronica Carey. She's an associate clinical professor in the Behavioral Health Counseling Department in Drexel University's College of Nursing and Health Professions. She's been working in behavioral health for over 20 years and is currently the chair of the Academy for Psychiatric Rehabilitation and Recovery. Dr. Veronica Carey, welcome to the 10,000 Hours Podcast. Thank you for having me. So I've been thinking a lot about uh, what our interview, how I was going to start our interview. I want to go all the way back to the beginning. Yes. Where did you grow up? And uh, was there anything uh, that happened to you as a child that you think informs the adult that you became? You know, it's funny because, you know, people do say everything happens for a reason. And you don't really realize that it becomes 2020 later on, right? So um, I'm from Narberth. And um, Narberth is a suburb of Philadelphia. It's called Along the Main Line. And quite literally, my brother and I, my older brother and I, we're two years apart, were the only two persons of color in Narberth Elementary School when we were both going when I was in, I moved there when I was eight. Um, So I was in second grade, he was in fourth grade. And until such time that my younger sister joined us, we're the only two people of color. Um, The idea being that it began to assist me in being comfortable in different arenas. Um, I felt comfortable navigating my home life and understanding, well, when he closed the door, we may practice this or we may celebrate that. When I go outside to play, people may not understand what I'm celebrating or, un- or I don't understand what they're celebrating. Um, I had a wonderful teacher in second grade. Her name was Mrs. Coffin. And she sort of had this awareness That's day. an unfortunate name I know, for a really great teacher. I know, teacher. but she was wonderful. <laughs> okay. She was really, I can picture her to this day. And I think about her often, actually. Um, but she had this awareness day because a lot of individual, a lot of the students had never seen someone of color. Well, we were only eight. Wow. And if no one was in wow. your neighborhood, when would you have ever seen this, right? Um, so we had this awareness day where, I'm going to tell you a little yarn, but we took a pencil. And I was able to take my hair and curl my hair around the pencil and pull it out. And my curl stayed. Well, you should have seen all the girls in the class. They were like, oh, how did the curl stay? You know, I don't understand how this could happen. You know, they're trying and the pencils are falling to the floor and trying and pencils are falling to the floor. Um, but it was sort of like a celebration for Mrs. Coffin to say, isn't this great that we have a new student here? And her name is Veronica. And you could ask her questions. She can ask you questions. Um, but it. As I grew up in that environment and understood that 
wow, this is sort of a celebration, not something of, you know, I didn't understand about mm-hmm. difference. I just knew this is great. You know, I can go to my Baptist church on Sunday and see very similar people, but Monday through Saturday, I'm going to probably be with more dissimilar people. Of course, not having that level of language at that point, but feeling very comfortable to navigate both. Then um, through, I went to Lower Marion High School. And I jokingly say, if you don't know where Lower Marion High School is, that's where Colby Bryant went. And it's not where yeah, he went to my four. high school. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, he went to my high school. I didn't go to his. Um, and during my um, senior year, I had far too many credits to have to stay on campus. So I knew what I wanted to go into in terms of I thought I wanted to major in psychology or sociology. So the better part of my senior year, I spent at Lower Marion Counseling Services. And I was there front door person. I was the one that greeted all the clients. Um, I greeted some of the patients, depending upon what they were coming in for. Um, kind of like just de-escalate some of their tension, um, bring them coffee and tea, make sure that, that they knew I was saying so-and-so has arrived, your next person's here for your uh, as the therapist. Um, but in doing so, I realized, wow, no matter who walked in there, I was comfortable with them. So what was it that took you to Udell? How did you choose um, that's a good question because I did submit, um, you know, a couple of applications to different universities. But as I toured around the campuses um, and I had a scholarship to the University of Delaware, I thought, well, this is going to be it. This is where I'm going to stay. Money talks. Um, it wasn't right. It wasn't too far away, but it was far enough that my mom and dad had to call first because why would you want to drive that far and have me not be there? Um, so I had some sort of criteria that I had to meet, and one of them was definitely going to be like distance and the comfort, you know, comfortability of the campus. Right. Um, and then when I get to my dorm, lo and behold, for three floors, I'm the only one of color for three floors on my dorm, which just made you comfortable. Exactly. You were like, this is exactly like, right. Home. This is I'm who I am. Home. Absolutely. So what was your major? My major was sociology. Okay. Mm-hmm. And what did you want to be? Um, I wanted to graduate. <laughs> I'm sorry. You're, that was my goal. <laughs> what I want to be in life is graduated gra- from college. A, a graduate I person want a from person undergrad. with a degree. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I didn't exactly know what I wanted to do with it, to yeah. be quite honest. Um, I just knew that I wanted to... I had learned at Lower Marion that I like systems. I like how things are sort of compiled and constructed. Um, but again, things happen for a reason. I met my husband. What kind of student were you? Well, let's see. The first quarter or first semester when I met my husband, um, because I was running around like a loon behind him, I had a 1.8. Horrible, horrible GPA. And I quickly understood, okay. What did you actually pass to get the one? <laughs> That's a good question. I should go back and yeah. look that up. It was probably something in my major. But um, but I I mean that's. Do you just remember horrible. what classes you were taking that semester? Um, I remember. Well, they're all the gen eds, mm-hmm. so they probably bored me half to death. So that's probably half the problem, right? I probably had because Lower Marion High School is a very very good high school. Absolutely. So I probably had some of this material before, but I think the majority of it, just to be very transparent, was I was just busy running around behind him because our dorms weren't that far apart, so we could thread across without having to go outside. Um, we could party on both floors without having to go outside. So yeah, and this is my first time away from my parents and my family. So it was a little bit different. So clearly you turned that around. <clears throat> oh, yes. Yes. What I had to do is I had French in Lower Marion from fifth grade to 12th grade. So what I did was oui. I took French. Oh, yeah, bien sûr. <laughs> so what I did was I took French 
um, 100, 101, 102, one, as if I never had French before to keep getting A's. Right. So every semester I take another French to get another A um, to keep building up my GPA. And so by the time you graduated, because you did graduate. Yes, I did graduate. Congratulations. <laughs> congratulations. <laughs> um, you had uh, kind of redeemed yourself. Yes. yes brought yes, your yes. whole thing all the way back up. Brought it all the way back At up. At any time, were your parents like on your back? Like, you've got to do better than Well, than this. this is the great part about it. My parents said, your job is to get in here and get out. We're not going to traffic you like we did in high school or in middle school. So they never saw the 1-8. Wow. They never saw it. If you're going to have a 1 8, the best way to have it is quietly and without parental (laughs) input. That's right. But I knew that my job, my parents are two very hardworking people. And who would I be to take their money and sit here and get another 1 8 or a 1 3 or whatever or get kicked out? So when I came to that realization, from that point forward, I was towing the line. So I want to switch gears. So you also have huge responsibilities outside the university. Oh, absolutely. So why don't you tell us about absolutely. some of Absolutely. So um, one of the things is that I am the chair of the Psychiatric Rehabilitation Association. And in that role, what I do is I, bo- I do both national and international trainings in psychiatric rehabilitation. Uh, most recently, I returned from Abu Dhabi about two weeks ago. And there was the first congressional congress of what's called the World Association of Psychosocial Rehabilitation. And I was there to present two workshops on the um, introduction of psychiatric rehabilitation for the new practitioner. And then what does recovery and relapse mean for those practitioners that have more familiarity, but probably don't have the language that they need to educate the workforce about how psychiatric rehabilitation fits. Um, so I wear that hat very proudly. It takes me around the world. I've been to Singapore, Korea, Honduras, Milan, Italy, um, and most notably I've been to Pakistan, both Karachi and Lahore. Talk about your work in Pakistan. My work in Pakistan tarted, started in t- uh, 2013. So it started in 2013, and it was uh, with a NGO called Caravan of Life USA and Caravan of Life Pakistan. And who they are is a people-to-people project, which means that their government does not fund any of this activity. These are all well-intentioned, willing workers, if you will, that are bringing their monies together to make sure that their behavioral health system is going to be able to generate more recovery-oriented practices. Now, in the United States, we've been doing this for decades, since the late 60s, early 70s. So we have a good jump of years that we've had history with recovery-oriented practices. A lot of our third world and developing countries don't have this history and don't want to take that much time to achieve it. So instead, they're bringing someone like myself to their country to help them implement rehabilitative strategies. And I thoroughly love doing that. It's like what motivates me because I'm going to be able to help people that I'll never meet. So I'm helping practitioners be competent in the field to then turn around and help the individuals that they're working with. So you have great examples of psych rehab in action, Mm -hmm. especially in the people that you've worked with uh, in Pakistan. Yes, yes. You want to share one of those with us? Absolutely. I'm glad you asked because one of the women, uh, we would call her Fatma, um, she is... 
she was very, very quiet, young, a young lady, right? So she was early in her diagnosis of um, schizophrenia hmm. and she has paranoid type. So this young, young lady, um, early in, in her diagnosis was very, very quiet. In uh, Muslim culture, there is a difference in gender, right? So mm -hmm. there's difference in terms of how you approach a male, how you approach a female. So it wasn't unlike females in Muslim culture to be a little bit more timid and a little bit more reserved. However, there's a way of viewing it also if it's going to, if it's going to limit my ability to function. So she wasn't functioning because of this. She would just sort of like sit there and do nothing. So in psychiatric rehabilitation, we believe that people can grow and change beyond the day you meet them. I tell my freshmen, if you don't believe that, then this is going to be a hard path for four years and you're going to have a hard job in life. If you, they, if you don't think the person you're going to meet can grow and change beyond the day you meet them. So we figure out what makes the most sense to engage that person. So this was my first time in 2013 going to Karachi. I hadn't learned Urdu enough to really engage people, so I know enough Urdu now that I can get around a little bit. Um, but I would just, but she also spoke English, which was also great. The more education people have in Karachi and Pakistan, they also speak English. So she was able to, she was speaking English, and um, I would go in and I'd say, Good morning, Fatima, and she would stare down at the floor, barely audible. Next day, Good morning, Fatima, and she'd do the same thing, barely audible. And then, but the idea being, I was still going to engage her. I was going to and not act as if you're not sitting here because you are. So then after a couple of days of, of that, I finally went over to her and I bent down and I said, Fatima, I'm almost six feet tall. I don't know how many centimeters or meters or whatever that is. I said, but can you look up when I come by and speak back? Because I can't hear you when you're facing down. And then I just walked away as if it was going to happen. And uh, maybe it was later on that day or maybe it was the next day. I could see her registering herself because she saw me coming. And I thought, wow, she's, she's really going to do this. And But other staff had no anticipation of her doing more than what she was doing. And um, so she came and she says, hi, Dr. Carey. And I said, good morning, Fatima. And I kept on going. And the staff were like, are you kidding me? We should be going back there. I said, no. In the quote unquote natural community, no one's going to celebrate that Fatima said hello. We're going to expect that Fatima said hello. So I just answered her back like anybody else would. When you say hello to me, do I ring a bell and throw up balloons and throw my hands up in the air? And staff were kind of like, well, I guess not. But she, the anticipation is that she'll continue. Don't let her digress. Can, you know, keep doing this. So now other staff are going over and saying, Fatima, if you can speak to Dr. Carey, you can speak to me. And she'd smile at them and she'd, oh, okay. You know, and then we began to graduate, including her into things. Fatima, do you mind if, um, you know, because of course now she's speaking to more people, do you mind joining the uh, newsletter group? And do you mind being the one that circulates the newsletter? Since you're greeting people, it really helps to say good morning and hand over the newsletter in the different parts of, of the building. Of course, it, okay, you know, and she'd walk real slowly and she'd get the newsletters in the morning and she, and I'd say, don't forget, I'm going to be down the hallway. I should be able to hear your greeting. And she's okay. And good morning. Next day I'd say, could you please say good morning to the person's name? That, that's really helpful. It makes them feel happy and included, Fatma. Good morning, Maurice. And she'd hand the newsletters. Okay. So we continue to do those kinds of things, right? Because everything in psychiatric rehabilitation has meaning.
right? We just don't put, you know, pegs in, in holes and that kind of thing and say, okay, we've done something throughout the day. So that process had meaning for her, right? She was now included. She had a task. She had a role. As adults, we have many roles. You engaged me earlier today asking me how many hats do I have, which I could say synonymously with how many roles do I offer in the community. So age appropriately, we're now giving her a role. And she was in charge of, the, of disseminating those newsletters. Well, every weekend, she would go home to family members, pretty much getting into the vehicle. One of the aides would walk her to the car, female to female, and get her into the vehicle, and they would drive off. This particular Friday, I remember it was a Friday because that's when her parents came to pick her up. The aide went, Fatima got into the car, and all of a sudden I saw the aide like flailing her arms, and I thought, oh my gosh, Fatima fell underneath the car or fell off the curb or what happened? And the aide came back into the building, and the program's called The Recovery House. And she said, you should have seen Fatima. She was talking about everything she's been doing and how much responsibility she has and next week what she's going to be doing. And I didn't even know she wanted to even do that next week. And the family started crying because they'd never heard her speak so much. And then the staff, I said, now we can celebrate. And the staff were hugging each other and high-fiving each other. And that's what psychiatric rehabilitation looks like. It's those small things that happen where you can see where the point started and where the point is at and see what that differential is. And it reinforces me, Maurice, time and time again to continue to generate a workforce so that people that I'll never, ever meet in the countries that I land in and educate in and leave will have these kinds of outcomes. So what do people not understand about psych rehab? They don't know how to distinguish it from psychology. Mm. And oftentimes can't distinguish it from psychiatry. So psychiatric rehabilitation is a recovery-oriented strategy based on several evidence-based practices that demonstrate people can have what's called recovery in behavioral health. Now, recovery doesn't mean absence of the illness. Recovery means I can live, learn, work, and socialize. I can function with the least amount of direct practitioner intervention. So this is why I tell clinical medical um, uh, practitioners to do your job and do them well because you're going to generate people who are more stable and for longer 10 years of time than in recent behavioral health history. A lot of uh, new pharmacology has afforded people longer tenures in stability than ever before. And that coupled with good therapeutic interventions and a recovery-oriented model, now we have people that have schizophrenia that are living, learning, working, and socializing. We have people with PTSD that are doing the same, bipolar disorder. So it's a different orientation. It's almost as if someone has cancer or diabetes or heart condition. We don't expect them not to live, learn, work, and socialize. We expect them to do so, but maybe at a slower rate or maybe with a limited assistance uh, or maybe with checking into different kinds of professionals. And that's what the recovery-oriented strategy now means in, in behavioral health. And that's what psychiatric rehabilitation talks about. So you'll remember this. So back in the 70s, there was a commercial um, that said, I'd like to teach the world the saying. It was a oh, co-commercial, yes. co right? Yes, I'd, I'd, I'd like to remember. buy the world a Coke. Like, right. Right. So the conceit there was- In harmony. If, if we, right, if right. we just buy everybody a Coke, everything be good, right? <laughs> okay, so here's my question to you is, so given your psychiatric rehabilitation lens, mm -hmm. what is it that you would like to teach the entire world or give the entire world that they don't know? 
I would like to have the entire world realize that even when someone has a quote-unquote disorder, that they're still capable of something and that we shouldn't view it as a disability. Because really, by, de by definition, people want to be able, and by diagnosis, they may be disabled. But we call it a label, and we say they have a disability. And we, when I'm teaching my freshmen through my senior students, I will correct their language from freshman year to senior. And I say, if you're using words like someone suffering from schizophrenia or suffering from bipolar disorder, well, then doggone it, I must be really suffering if you're using the word. I must really be disabled, right? But instead, what I teach my student is, students is that the diagnosis made you eligible to meet that person. After you've met them, who else are they? Taking us back to when I was running programs, Maurice, I used to literally reinforce my staff by giving them a day off with pay. If you can come and tell me the multiple hats that people you work with wear, not that they have schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, uh, whatever it happens to be, who else are they? And how, else are, you gonna, how are you going to find out who else are they? You have to do what? You have to talk to them. Absolutely. So now I'm paying you to engage people. The diagnosis made them eligible to come into our program. Who else are they? And you should have seen staff collecting these, li these great lists. Uh, maybe they're a father. Maybe they're a brother. Maybe they're a son. Maybe they're a missionary for their church. Maybe they volunteer in the football field. You know, whatever they happen to do, and they'd bring these to our staff meetings, and they would literally come in with them close to the vest because they didn't want someone else to steal an item off their list that may be, uh, you know, parallel to someone else they're working with. And it was almost like that typical, you have a business card, and you kind of go, bam. They would just bring their, you know, and lay them out and be like, drop the microphone. There you go. The person, day off. Yeah, day Boom. off. Boom. <laughs> seven things, you know. And I'm like, wow. But the idea wasn't just to find the seven things out. You're going to talk to people. Now, when they come to program, you can say, I'm so glad you're working on your coping skills, or I'm so glad you're working on how to introduce yourself. I'm sure you can practice that at church or on the field or in that, you see, it's beyond the doors of the service. So that's what I want people to understand. People are going to have something that may be very situational, and by definition, it's very independent and unique. Some situation could be months long, could be years long, but if the Workforce believes that change can happen, and it has so as a collection, as a collective of um, professionals, then we'll see change that much sooner, hopefully then reducing the stigma. Dr. Veronica Carey, it's been a real pleasure getting to know you. The 10,000 Hours podcast is powered by Drexel University Online. 